I'm Jeff Smith and welcome to The Secrets of Success. Throughout my life, I've been fascinated by one single question and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? Over the last 40 years, I've interviewed rich people, famous people, and many millionaires to find out their secrets of success and to share them here with you. Of course, success is not always measured in money. And in these programs, I'm looking at many different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick, how they overcame adversity to keep on going, and I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In today's episode, I'm talking with John Follis. John is an award-winning advertising executive and marketing expert. His Madison Avenue ad agency, Follis DeVito Verzi, was one of the most successful and award-winning agencies in the USA. For its successful ad campaigns, it received national media attention in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Forbes, CNBC, and the Harvard Business Review. I mean, it's just wow. As a thought leader, John's been invited to address the World Business Academy and the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute, among others. And get this, for his exceptional public service work, he's personally been honored at the White House. But before any of this, he was fired. Not once, but four times in the first seven years of his career. He also flunked his first college advertising class and he was told he would never succeed in advertising. How we overcome these multiple early setbacks is part of what John will be sharing with us today. Wow, this is going to be filled with business insights. Let's bring in the man himself and welcome to the show, Mr. John Follis. Jeff, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's an honor. And it's an honor for me too. How are you, my friend? I am great. Awesome. So you flunked at college. Tell me what happened and what changed when you discovered entrepreneurship in your life. Well, when you asked me what happened uh, specifically, what do you want? <laughs> what would you like to talk about? The times I got fired four times, the times I flunked my ad class. What, what do you want to know? Okay. Let's go a little bit earlier then. Why were you interested in marketing and why did you choose marketing? Well, the fact of the matter is uh, I was never sure about that, Jeff. I, um, I was always talented creatively, uh, artistically. I had a talent for that growing up, but I never really could figure out how to apply my creative or artistic skill toward a profession. So I was, um, I was uh, well into college, uh, still undecided about a career. And it wasn't until one of my uh, design instructors. I was this second year in college. I took a design class at this university. And about halfway through the class, she asked me to see her after class, which is never really a good thing to be told. <laughs> uh, but she uh, asked me a very interesting question. She asked me what I would like, what I'm planning to do with my life. To which I replied, well, why are you asking? To which she said, well, you're extremely talented. And the reason why I'm asking you is because this school doesn't have a very strong curriculum in uh, anything related to creativity or communication, media, arts, uh, things like that. So my advice to you is that you should get out of this university and transfer to one that would give you more opportunity to explore your creative talent. To which I, I replied, well, any, any suggestions? And the college that she suggested that I transfer to happened to be, get this, the same college that my dad went to school at. Okay. 
which was Syracuse University. So when I uh, was speaking to my dad shortly thereafter and shared the story and mentioned the university, that was probably more expensive than the one I was attending and recommended or mentioned that she recommended that I transfer. He was fine with it since he was paying the bills. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he had to give his approval for that. So that was the beginning, uh, Jeff. I, you know, at that point, I was starting my my third year of college, uh, just knowing that uh, uh, this university would give me more opportunities to explore. But I wasn't sure at that point specifically what direction. And I was speaking to someone who I thought was some kind of a guidance counselor who basically took out my course card and filled it with all advertising related classes. And uh, he said, now just take this over to the woman and she'll get you set up. And I talked to the woman. I said, by the way, who was that guy I just spoke to? He was a guidance counselor, right? And she said, no, no, no. He's the chairman of the advertising department. I said, okay. Slightly biased then, huh? And his, his words, Jeff, were, listen, I, you know, so I went back to him. I said, well, wait a second. I'm not sure that advertising is the right direction for me. He said, listen, kid, if you're creative, you have talent and you want to make money, you go into advertising. Now go back to that woman and <laughs> tell her to set you up. What great so advice. How, what great but, advice. Yeah. How old were you at this stage? Well, third in, third year in college. So, um, I don't know, 20 maybe, something like that. Sure. I think at 20 maybe there's not many people at that age really know what to do. So that was kind of a lucky break falling on that guy. Great advice too. Great advice. So what happened when you joined college then? You, you took his advice. You went to this university. What happened? Well, I, I didn't know that it was good advice or not. I was just kind of uh, following the direction I was told to go in. Um, I liked advertising. I think I'd written, read a book around that time by a guy named Jerry Delafamina, who was at the time one of the superstars on Madison Avenue. And it was a very entertaining book about the advertising business. So I was at the very least intrigued by the idea. But um, the thing about Syracuse, just so you know, is located about five and a half hours by car north of New York City. And somehow they managed to get uh, people who were working on Madison Avenue in New York City to come up to teach their classes. I don't, I don't assume they drove. Maybe they took a, a, a short air shuttle there. But uh, the, 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 not all of them, but a majority of them were from New York teaching. So these guys were like rock stars to us, uh, just trying to learn, learning the business. So when they, when they gave you advice or, 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 or um, commented on your, your talents, you, you took them seriously. So when I um, was not doing well in my advertising 101 class, um, I was freaking out. Um, I think I started, I think you needed to get like at least a B average in order to continue with the program. So I think I started out getting C pluses. And as the course continued, there was a, a steady decline in my grades to the point where I was getting Ds um, in the middle of the class. And I could not figure out, I didn't, I didn't think that um, it was because of my talent. I just did not, I personally did not like the instructor. Mm. I thought he was kind of an asshole, to be, <laughs> to be honest. But that's not going to help, is it? <laughs> he was a very egocentric guy. I, you could just tell the vibe of him. He was like playing up to all the cute girls in the class. And as it turned out uh, uh, later on in the class, it became pretty obvious that um, he was actually um, – physically sexually involved with one of the students in the class, which I mean, you know, to each his own, but um, it kind of pissed me off that she was getting really good grades and I was not. So um, I, I, I had kind of an attitude as the class went on about him. And um, at a certain point toward the end of the class, he pulled me aside. And this time when I was asked to speak with my instructor after class, it was not good. He essentially said, um, clearly, you don't uh, understand advertising, and I'm going to give you a choice. Uh, you can 
there's three weeks to go in the class. You could continue. Your grades are not good now. And I can't tell you what your grades will be in another three weeks. I, all I can tell you is that they probably will not be good. So you could continue and take the grade that I'm going to give you, or you could just drop the class right now. Wow. Which was really, in my mind, I, I'm the kind of guy that doesn't like giving up. I'm mm -hmm. a fighter. Mm -hmm. So to kind of be given that ultimatum to me was a hard pill to swallow. And I said, I asked him if I could think about it. He said, yeah, you got 24 hours. Let me know. And um, it was pretty clear to me that uh, he was he was going to flunk me or, you know, give me a bad grade. So at that point, I didn't really see it as much of a choice. And I ended up dropping the class and then seriously questioned. Oh, and the last thing as as I left his office, Jeff, he said, let me tell you one more thing, kid. Don't go into advertising. And now those are the last words that I got from this Madison Avenue executive from my first advertising class. And my head was spinning. I did not know how to deal with that. I was not doing that badly in my other classes, but this was like the main advertising 101 mm -hmm. class. So if, mm -hmm. if I had to do good in any class, this was the one I had to this do good in. One. Yeah. And uh, at that point, Jeff, I had to make a decision. Do I um, listen to this guy who's the Madison Avenue expert and think that I'm really not cut out for the industry? Or do I continue and maybe uh, try to take the same class with a different instructor? And fortunately, the way Syracuse uh, was designed with their courses, they did have multiple instructors teaching similar, the same class. So I figured, well, maybe, and I had a gut feeling that maybe it had more to do with him than it had to do with me. So I wasn't sure about that, but I figured, let me give it a shot. Same class, different instructor and see what happens. And fortunately, that made all the difference because with the new instructor, I think I ended up with like an A minus in the class. Big awesome. difference, right? Awesome, awesome. It just shows two things. How, what other people say how that affects our lives and our perception of who we are and what we can achieve and the impact that a good teacher makes on our lives. Now, a good teacher might can be high school, can be college, can be university, but also our leaders in life also make a difference. So how we treat our people and what we say to them makes massive, massive impact. And I think the way you were treated, you could have gone two ways. And it's funny, exactly the same thing happened to me. I had an idea for a book and people say, oh, that, that will never work. You failed at maths, you failed at English, you're not the person to write this book, you can't do it. And if even if you did, no one would buy it. Right now, John, I'm on record as the most successful author in history on a book about mathematics. So it's beware of what other people say to you. So digging in, having belief. Let's move on to that now, because that, that those are absolute traits about how successful people become successful. So you had a great teacher. What then happened? Well, then I was thrown into uh, the real world where I needed to find a job. And uh, even though I grew up about two hours out of New York City, uh, I was always intimidated by New York City because my immediate environment where I grew up was uh, pretty rural. Mm -hmm. And New York City was a very fast moving, loud, crazy place that just scared me. And um, but if you're I was also very ambitious, so I had to kind of balance the uh, desire to uh, work at a big agency or a, a reputable agency, but not wanting to new go to New York. And the instructors at Syracuse looked at you kind of cross-eyed if you told them you didn't want to go to New York because that was the mecca yeah. of advertising. However, one of my instructors had worked in, of all places, the, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, so he said, well, you're crazy for not going to New York. However, if you want to go to Atlanta, I can give you some names of some people to talk to who might you know, give you an interview. So that's what I did. Uh, never been down south, knew nothing about Atlanta. It was like a different planet being down there. 
And uh, that's where I started my career, worked there for two years. Um, and then after a couple of years, I felt like I wasn't getting the opportunities. I just felt like things were moving too slow for me down there. And I still didn't feel quite ready for New York. So I, um, I, I quit my job, did not have a new job uh, and just moved to Chicago and uh, interviewed in Chicago and pretty quickly got a job and worked in Chicago for three years. And then after three years in Chicago, I finally felt like I was ready for the big leagues. I was 27 at the time and decided that I didn't want to ever look back on my career, uh, having the experience of not having worked in New York and wondering when I'm the age I am now, what it would have been like if I had moved to New York. So I figured even though I wasn't sure I was totally ready for New York, I knew that I was ready to give it a shot. Yeah. Also, one of the magical steps of success, you know, people wait until they're ready to do something. And I don't think you're ever ready. You just get on with it, do it, jump and grow wings on the way down, as you say. So you got fired four times. What happened? Are you a rebel or what happened? Well, um, I would have to say yes to that question because I remember... Uh, speaking to a, a recruiter, they call them headhunters here. I don't know if that's a term used in, in England. Yeah, it is, but, yeah. Okay. So I remember speaking with one of the headhunters at one point, and I, I think it was probably after being fired one of those times. I don't recall exactly. But I remember her comment to me after just a few minutes of conversation, and she kind of summed me up by saying, I think you're a little bit of a rebel. <laughs> And at the time, it wasn't really meant as a compliment. But looking back on it now, I, 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 I do, you know, it's easy now at this stage of the game to look back on it and say, well, I take that as a compliment. But it certainly yeah. wasn't meant to be when she said it to me at that point. So that's a, that's a, a long way of saying uh, I think you're probably accurate by saying that. But I, I think I had a, Jeff, I think I had a problem with authority. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was an entrepreneur, so I, I grew up uh, hearing him talk around the dinner table about running his business. And, you know, some people are, are fine in a, in a big corporate environment where they uh, have to follow the rules and things like that. But um, for whatever reason, um, if I felt the rules didn't make sense to me, I would have a hard time following them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what your experience is working for for big corporate environments. You've been an entrepreneur, I think, a long time. But um, at that stage in my career, I was getting hired at these these big international ad agencies that were steeped in corporate politics. And there was no course that I took in college that trained me how to succeed in corporate politics. And as a result, I, I, um, I did things and I maybe said a couple of things that um, did not uh, help me succeed in that environment. Yeah, I, I'm the same. Even my daughters say I'm a rebel. And I'm not, I'm not really sure myself whether it's, it's a compliment or not. I'll take it as one. But I have the same issue it, with following rules that don't make sense. Uh, I, I struggle with that too. I, I now deem myself unemployable. I don't think I could do it anymore. So I've I've done the employment. I've worked for large organizations. I work within large organizations now. Uh, and that's okay because I don't have to stay there for too long. Yeah. But, but playing the long political game, I'm with you on that one. I I I can't do it. So having my 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 uh, belief which was erroneous as I realized, my my belief was that uh, it was all about talent. I mean, I'm a creative person. This is what, this is what my role was at an ad agency. I wasn't on the business side. I was started. I was an art director, uh, who who knew how to write as well. So I was all about coming up with concepts and and executing these ideas and presenting my creative ideas. And I thought that that was enough to enable me to be successful uh, in that environment. I soon realized very quickly that. Uh, that was not true because I saw a lot of people who I thought were much less talented than I was who were 
very successful because they were good at something called office politics. And um, I didn't really, um, I didn't realize at that time I was a little bit naive to think that um, I I didn't need to be good at that until, you know, getting fired as many times as I did (laughs) to realize. But the other part of it, Jeff, was I I didn't really, um, I didn't really want to be good at at politics. I yeah. just wanted to be good at my skill and have the opportunity to showcase mm-hmm. what I did. And what's interesting is that the the personality traits and the, the skills that got me in trouble at these big corporate ad agencies were the same skills that made me so successful as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Amazing, huh? Very, right. very interesting. I, I totally agree with that and completely understand all of that. So, Back to the story then. You're in Chicago. You say, New York, I'm ready. You're going to, is this the point now where you leave the corporate world and do your own thing? No. No. When I moved to New York, I did the same thing I did when I moved to Chicago. Um, I I actually, when I left Chicago, was actually from a job that I did not get fired from. I actually quit that job. Um, it was about 50-50 during those first seven years whether I got fired or quit. <laughs> You're saying that like being fired is a badge of honor, John. <laughs> I'm just stating the facts. I, have to, I had to remember whether it was because I, I was fired or quit. Yeah. Um, so that was a job I was actually doing fairly well at. It was a smaller agency that I, I ended up resigning from. I was there for uh, about a year and a half, and they were actually surprisingly sorry to see me go. One of the few gigs I had where they were sorry to see me go, <laughs> but um, I I had a room, an ex college roommate who was living in Chicago, and one of his 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 buddies left uh, his apartment. Said, "Listen, John, if you're thinking of me- moving to New York, now would be a good time because we got a vacancy here, and in New York City, it's as hard to get a place to live as it is to get a job. So yeah, sure. I figured, well, let me just jump ship in Chicago and get my get set up with a place to live and then start my job search. And I I didn't realize it would be as hard as it turned out to be to find a job because I, I um, again, I was when I left Chicago, I was I was feeling good. I, I had done well at that agency and I just uh, people in New York just uh did not want to give me the time of day. It was just hard to get interviews. And uh, I don't know, maybe coming from Chicago, they looked kind of down at me because I wasn't coming from another New York agency. Um, there's a cut that there clearly was an attitude in New York that I didn't experience in the other uh, cities. They kind of, you know, it was, it was the big leagues and they acted like it was the big leagues. And the fact that I was coming from Chicago was like, they you know, did not impress them, shall we say. Yeah. So it, it took quite a while for me to get a job, but eventually I, I did find work. And I should say, you know, you asked me about getting fired. I just, in my defense, uh, of the four times I got fired, on two of those occasions, Jeff, the guy that brought me in, who really thought I was good, left uh, within two or three months after bringing me in. Now, I don't know what it's like in other professions or other countries, but I do know that uh, once my mentor, once my protector was not there to um, help me succeed, I felt like it was open, open game. I was, you know, uh, it was uh, I was an open target. And again, it's it's very ego driven and very political. And if you don't have someone uh, covering your back, you are very vulnerable. So the fact that on two of those occasions, my protector left shortly after bringing me in, I think uh, did not help my, my situation at all. Yeah, I think that's a human trait rather than an industry trait because I too have been in that situation and I'm sure that many people listening right now will say, oh yeah, that was me too. You remember that guy there? Right. Yeah, so um, I'm sure we all feel that. Okay, so you now have a job in New York. You've not jumped ship yet. What made you leave the, let dare I say, comfort of employment to start on your own? Now, well, there was no comfort to the employment. Uh-huh. So, you know, that's why that, I say that, dare that, I say. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a very false fact. 
you know, I was kind of more comfortable when I was not employed because I couldn't get fired. (laughs) You know, I mean, every day at these corporate environments, it's like, did I smile at the right guy when I got the in the elevator? Did I did I acknowledge him and, you know, kiss his ass the way I needed to do? You know, that that would drive that was driving me crazy. So even though it was difficult being out of work in New York City when you got to pay your rent, at least I didn't have that uh, hanging over my head. But one of the things that I began to realize maybe after the second uh, time I got fired is something called freelance work, mm-hmm. where I realized that you didn't to 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 get paid, you ne- didn't necessarily be on staff, that there were many agencies, uh, if you looked hard enough, that would be happy if they thought you were, you were a good fit to hire you uh, for a few days, a couple of weeks to do project work, things like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I started doing that probably after the second time I got fired. So even when I got hired again, oftentimes I would try to continue doing the freelance project on the side, knowing that there was a good chance that my days at the, at, uh, on staff could be limited. And so I wasn't ready to totally give up the, the stuff on the side. So I continued doing that. And after a while, started building up a bit of momentum doing the freelance work because mm-hmm. Uh, working for these smaller agencies doing project work, my political my political skills were much less important than my creative talents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as a result, um, I was I was uh, getting paid well. I was uh, pleasing the people I was I was working freelance with, and I did begin to build up a bit of momentum. Um, the problem with that, Jeff, is sometimes they give you the shit work when they bring in people from the outside. You don't always get the sexy assignments, right? Right. So you just have to make the best of what you're you're given. But every once in a while, you get lucky. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's what happened to me. I worked with a couple of guys who were um, uh, doing stuff on the side themselves, and we ended up doing a campaign that turned out to be one of the most uh, talked about campaigns in New York. It created a lot of buzz. It was for a local shoe designer. No one knew who he was. His name was Kenneth Cole. And this was in the mid 80s. Uh, Kenneth Cole now is an international icon in the fashion world. Um, But at the time, he was just starting out in New York. And we did some really creative ads that ran um, in New York Magazine that, that were getting people talking who's doing those ads. So that kind of Cool. When I was interviewing and you're, you know, it's all about, it's like, it's almost like being a recording artist. You have a hit if you have a hit, right? Yeah. In the top 10 or something like that, then you're hot, right? Yeah. Yeah. So because we, we were doing this campaign that people were talking about and I was involved with it, then it was easier for me to get more gigs and things like that. And that eventually attracted a business guy who was looking for a creative guy because he was looking to start an, an agency and he was, he wanted to pitch. He was a good business development guy. He just needed a, a really a creative superstar to help him yeah. pitch and hopefully win some business. So that's what started our agency. Okay. Let me just find out where your head was at that time. So you're employed in a job, which is seen as volatile, not comfortable for sure. But you're still doing the the freelancing on the side. Now, I'm often asked by people who have employment, hey, Jeff, I want to start my own business. Should I do a side hustle? Should I do something on the side, stay employed and wait for this crossover point so I can jump without money? Or should I just jump? What should I do? And of course, there's no answer to that because everyone's circumstances are different. But why were you doing both? Where was your head at the time? Were you thinking, I'm not going to be employed long-term, I want my own agency long-term, and here's how I learn before I have to jump. Is that what you were doing? Well, yeah. I mean, as I mentioned, after you get fired a couple of times um, for reasons that you think are kind of not related to your talent or your skill, then you just realize that nothing is secure. Mm-hmm. It's a very pull. Any any big agency in New York is uh, driven by politics, and if you're not good at it or you don't want to play the game, you're going to be vulnerable certainly long term. So that's that was 
uh, that was my attitude uh, as a motivation to keep doing the stuff on the side, not to mention the extra money you get. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was, I was not, I was not getting paid a lot of money at these big agencies. Mm -hmm. So, and living in New York is expensive. So the, the extra money I was making certainly came in handy. Um, And you always hope again, that you can get an opportunity. You're always focused when you're a creative person on, uh, doing pieces that are going to be um, uh, showcase pieces in your portfolio. So yeah. any opportunity, and sometimes you work at a smaller account, it's easier to get some uh, more uh, edgy creative work because some, sometimes big clients don't go for the most creative work. It's too scary for them to do anything too edgy. Yeah, smaller yeah. clients need the, they don't have the money to, to run the, the media. So they have to do something that's going to be a little bit more creative to stand out a little bit more. So there's always that too. Excellent. Okay. So the business development guy, he says, Hey John, I want to start up this agency. You are the creative guy. Come join me. What's in your head at this time? Well, the problem with that for me was, um, he called me out of the blue. I didn't, he was referred to me by someone I had worked with. He was looking for a creative guy and he was like, he was asking people who's the best creative guy, you know? So I was highly referred to him. He called me out of the blue. I had no idea who he was. Um, Just some guy who was referred to me, who was a business guy who wanted to meet with me. And I said, great. So um, I'm busy for the next few days. This was like on a Monday. I said, how about, you know, Friday, lunch, I'm free. And he said, how about tomorrow? And I said, well, I, as I said, I'm busy till Friday. So uh, I don't know, maybe Thursday after work. He said, how about Tuesday? <laughs> <laughs> so you could just to give you an idea what this guy, yeah. this was the kind of guy once he, he was like a pit bull, Yeah. you know, once he decided on what he wanted to do, he, he would just want to do, he was very, very aggressive. So I finally, so part of me was turned off by that, mm-hmm. but another part of me was intrigued by the fact that he was so, so dogged and determined. So we, we got together, we had a beer now, I brought my portfolio. He wanted to see my work. So, you know, he spent five, 10 minutes looking at my work. He was bowled away by the creative. And I'm thinking, so what do I have to look at? The guy's suit, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I asked him a few questions and about 20 minutes into the conversation, Jeff, he says, well, I think we should start an ad agency. (laughs) And I'm looking out at my watch and literally 20 minutes. And it was like going on a blind date with someone saying, I think we should get married. Yeah, yeah. To which I replied, well, maybe we should go on a few dates. What do you think about that? You know? Yeah. I want to bring up a really important business point here, here because I have lots of friends, colleagues, associates come to me and say, Jeff, we're ready to go into business and I'm going to go into partnership with this guy. Can you meet with us? I say, sure, let's let's just have a chat first. Here's the essential ingredient that has to happen, and it's the absolute perfect ingredient that you have just explained. Being in business with somebody is like being married with somebody, as you quite rightly say. But here's the thing. So many people have come to me, and they go into business together for the completely the wrong reasons, and that's because they're friends or they like doing what they do. The The big error, John, is two people come to me and they both do the same thing. And I'll say, that will never, ever work. Because if you're going to go into business with somebody, here's the real simple rule. Your business partner must have something that you don't have and you must have something that they don't have. Otherwise, it will never, ever work. And you've just given the absolute perfect, perfect recipe for how two very people who don't know each other, which, okay, maybe you need do need a few dates first, but he's a very, very different person to you and has very, very different skills to you and you to him. So tell us more about that. So, yeah. So, you know, I was part of me was turned off by his aggressive aggressiveness. 
Um, but the other part of me was intrigued by it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I should mention is that um, a lot of the account executives, business guys I dealt with, um, didn't really uh, get excited about great creative work. Yeah. They were more focused on what they could sell to the client to make their job easier. Yeah. They weren't necessarily looking for out-of-the-box thinking, something that was a bit edgy. And my work that I was sharing with him was, was pretty edgy stuff. And the fact that he genuinely seemed to um, like the fact that it was edgy and, and value the fact that it was edgy and appreciate it um, made me think that maybe this is the kind of business guy that would be a good fit for me. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure I could trust it. This was just, you know, 20 minutes. Yeah. But I, I mean, he, he, he genuinely seemed, I could, I could sense from him that he really did seem uh, ex- genuinely excited by the work, creative work. So the question for me was, um, beyond the fact that this guy was aggressive, is, was this guy a personality fit for me as a partner? And at that point, I said, well, let's, let's explore a collaboration and see where it takes us. And that's what we did. Cool. So you begin, you set up your ad agency and then I said, well, no, we didn't, we didn't do that. I said, find some business. I said, you got my portfolio, you know, here, here, here's the golden goose, you know, take, take, take this work, find us some business to work on. Okay. And then, and then, and then, you know, once we start working, if you find some project work, then we'll get a chance to see how we work together. Oh, see if you okay. can see if you can get some business. And then yeah. if we get some business, then we could talk about maybe starting an ad agency. Okay. So it, it obviously worked. Well, not for the first couple of months. Um, I mean, the assignments he was getting were like crappy assignments, like bank brochures and things like that. And I wasn't interested in doing a bank brochure. But, uh, you know, that's he was he was getting whatever he could get. And it really wasn't until maybe five months into our collaboration that he said, John, I've got an interesting um, meeting set up. This is a guy who is looking uh, for an ad agency to uh, do a TV commercial for his product. And uh, that was pretty rare because a lot of the, the clients, the businesses we were working with didn't have the budgets to justify a TV commercial. They were things like brochures and maybe an ad or a radio commercial, but a TV commercial was a pretty sexy thing to be given. But he said, listen, you know, he's, he's speaking to um, four or five other agencies. It's not just us. So we're going to be in a shootout to pitch his business. And he's asking, I convinced him that uh, I'm working with one of the best creative guys in New York and, you know, we'll do a great job for him. So we've got two and a half weeks to come up with, a concept. So that was our, our opportunity. And we pitched against five other, four or five other agencies and we won the business. So it wasn't, a, and that was a significant piece of business. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were also, I think um, he was spending, I think his, his media budget, Jeff, this and, th- and you got to understand this is 40 years ago. This is like 1989, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, so yeah, so 32 years ago. So um, his budget at that time was about $300,000 in TV media. And we were making, I think we were getting like a 15% commission on that. So, you know, that was, that was enough money to, to do something with for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So at that point is when we started talking about maybe we should really um, – I uh, use this as, as a jumping board to uh, announcing our agency, you know, mm-hmm. and it was a great, com- it was a great product and it was a really edgy uh, uh, commercial that we did. It was a competitive, we did a competitive thing against the competition and it was the kind of commercial that we thought that if he, if he went with it, if his, if his lawyers approved it, because it was really edgy. When you're talking about the competition, you have to really be careful. You don't say anything that you could get sued for. And uh, to his credit, um, he went with the creative and um, it really put us on the map in a big way. This is what the uh, we got written up in the Harvard Business Review because of this commercial. Oh, excellent. Are you able yeah. to share what the commercial was? 
Yeah, I, I don't know if it would make a lot of sense to an international audience, but certainly anyone in the United States knows uh, the brand Smucker's Jam. Smucker's was uh, by far the number one jam or jelly in the United States who had been advertising for decades uh, with a tagline, a very, very famous tagline with a name like Smucker's, it has to be good. And everyone in the United States knows the tagline with a name like Smucker's, it has to be good. And we were basically saying uh, with a name like Smucker's, it doesn't have to be good. Um, and our product, now this is 1988, 89, Jeff. Now, his product was was an all fruit jam. It didn't include a lot of um, high fructose corn syrup, no re refined sugar. The average, you know, he gave us like an education in jams and jellies, which, you know, who knew? You just, mm. you don't really think about. But he said, John, do you realize that most jams, like Smucker's Jams, the leading jams, uh, jam in the United States is only 8% of fruit solids and the rest of it is high fructose corn syrup and sh refined sugar and water. So that's what you're you're paying for. Our our fruit, our jam is 100% fruit and fruit juice, nothing else. Wow. So we've got a real, so at the time that he hired us, his jam was only sold in health food stores. So no, none of the American, it wasn't on the, on the grocery store, the grocery shelves of, of uh, American stores. So he was trying to, with this campaign we were creating, uh, use it as an opportunity to be in the, on the grocery shelves of Amer America competing with the number one brand Smucker. So he said, listen, if you want to do something competitive against the leader in the industry, that's fine with us because we're better. So that's what we did. We did a commercial that said, uh, basically it started out with the Smucker's tagline. That's what the first thing was on the screen with a name like Smucker's, it had to be good. With the voice there saying for years, Smucker's has been telling you they have to be good. But did you know their preserves are mostly corn syrup, refined sugar, and not a lot of fruit. And after, as the announcer was talking, a pair of hands, you see my hands, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was with a name like Smucker's, it has to be good. The last line at the bottom was it has to be good. So as the announcer was saying all the crap yeah, yeah. that this was made, they would put up a patch over it has to be good with um, it might be good. It could be good. Is it really so good? So with a name like Smucker's, so it ended, is it really so smoke? Then we cut to a beauty shot of our product and with the announcer saying, fortunately, there's something better. Sora Ridge. Sora Ridge is made with 100% fruit and fruit and nothing else. So with a Sora Ridge with 100% fruit, it has to be better. So mm -hmm. our tagline was basically playing off of their famous tagline right. very simple stuff just yeah. basically staying the stating the facts but in a provocative way yeah. basically dismantling this famous iconic tagline that every american knew yeah so um it made a real major impact in the he ran it in a couple of markets i think new york and 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 southern california where people were a little bit more health health conscious and because it was so successful, Jeff, in the first, I think in the first um, 60 days of running it, sales went up 90%. Wow. So wow. there was a direct, which is unusual for a kind of a branding commercial, you know, mm -hmm. a commercial like that. Um, so because there was a sur uh, direct cause action reaction to, to the commercial, he was able to justify putting another half a million dollars um, he, I don't know where he got the money. I think he put his mortgage, his, his house, just to get the money because it, it was, it was just, uh, it was. He just saw the results, and um, it was a major, major success. And that was our first major account as an ad agency. Yeah, incredible. Well, from then, it was a magical springboard to take off from. You've had incredible, incredible success stories. We don't have time to go into them, but what I do want to capture now is your expertise. So using your vast expertise and knowledge on marketing, advertising, things like that, in your experience, what are the most common mistakes 
that companies get wrong with their marketing? Um, they, well, it depends, you know, that you, when you say companies, there are huge companies with millions and millions of dollars. And then there's small entrepreneurial companies where there's, you know, a solopreneur. Sure. And there's there's a big difference. So that's a pretty big basket when you say companies. It really I'll, different. I'll, I'll let you decide. Let's do both okay. if it's worthy. Um, well, for smaller companies, the biggest mistake I think is they try to do it themselves. Yeah. You know, they watch a couple. They listen to a couple of podcasts. They hear a speaker uh, talk about something, and all of a sudden they think they've got it all figured out, or they've read a couple of books on it, and all of a sudden they think they're an expert and they try to do it themselves. Um, so that's what I say for smaller companies, but even even um, even for some smaller companies where they uh, realize that they are not experts and they try to find an expert, it's very challenging uh, to find someone who you can really trust, who knows what they're talking about, because a lot of marketing people are very good at selling themselves. Mm, they should be. That's why they're in marketing, right? That, yes, exactly. Uh, the problem is they're better at selling themselves than actually doing the job they need to be doing for their clients. Mm, and selling you. Right. Yeah. Right. They're, they're better at selling themselves. Uh, they're, they're more salesmen than they are marketing experts. Yeah. You've created, now, two, of course, you've created two traps for me now, John. Be yeah. Because I've said, what are the most common mistakes that the, the small businesses like me, what do they do wrong? And it's, you, you try and do it yourselves. Okay, fine. But it's so difficult to get someone else. So now we're trapped. So if there are any solopreneurs listening, what's the way out? Um, well, you know, I'm not saying that no one uh, has the ability to do it themselves. I just complimented you prior to this podcast. What a great job you've done with your personal branding. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, you know, I don't know your history with marketing, if you worked with other people or what your background is, but, you know, clearly you're doing a great, great, great job, in my opinion, however you're doing it. Um, but with very few exceptions, most smaller businesses or solopreneurs are, are not extremely good at marketing themselves. Um, so, yes, the challenge then becomes, well, how do I find someone? And that I, years ago, I actually wrote a couple of articles addressing this because there are various things. It's kind of like, again, to use the marriage analogy, mm -hmm. uh, you, you, any, any uh, marketing resource really should not be seen as a vendor. Again, this is, this is a perception thing. The, the more successful businesses treat their marketing resource, resource as a valued partner versus a hired vendor. Mm -hmm. So you've got you to be in a partnership with your marketing. You've got to really have that tight synergistic relationship and really be tight because your marketing resource needs to really be um, totally uh, clear about your business, what you do, what your goals are, what your business go, every nuance of your business, the better they understand you and your business, the, the more su successful they could be at marketing. So you, that has to be a very tight relationship. That's not an easy thing to find. So, uh, you know, we could devote a, an entire podcast on how do you find that? Certainly referrals help. You talk to, it's like anything where you talk to trusted people that uh, maybe has worked with a marketing resource and had good success. That's why anyone who has testimonials, that's golden. Mm -hmm. um, but that alone is not enough. So, you know, I think there, there's probably four or five different things that, yet, that you could use uh, to help qualify a good marketing resource. Testimonials, referrals is certainly one of them. But I would also say uh, don't totally jump into bed with them completely. Start working with them. Give them something that you could begin because again, how they present themselves may be very different than the reality once you get sure. to know them. Yeah. So whatever you can do to begin the process of working together so you can test the waters and see how it goes along. Okay. And that's, I think, probably the best thing 
uh, to do because you'll know after working with someone a period of time and the more successful, and it's just like I described with this, uh, this campaign we did for our client. He wasn't so sure that this campaign was so successful. In his gut, he thought it had a good shot of being successful. But once he ran it, it was successful. Then he realized, of course, let me put more money into it. Mm-hmm. And similar, similar parallel to working with a, a business relationship. Yeah, I would say. That, that's a great tip. Thank you so much. Okay, I want to go to the flip side of that. Someone sets up in business. They think they don't have the funds to go outside to get a marketing agency and they decide to do it themselves. What sort of things do you think they should be doing as a minimum? You're going to do your own stuff. What are the essential ingredients to do? Um, I would say create great video content is probably one of the, the best things that anyone, regardless of what your business is, uh, it still amazes me now we're in 2022, still amazes me how many uh, businesses don't realize the value of good video content. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, you know, even if you've got to hire someone who knows how to work a camera, you know, pay someone a few bucks to get the lighting and the audio right. You know, you want to have video, but you want to have decent quality video because the problem with marketing is just as good marketing could uh, help your company get to the next level. If you put out stuff there that's not the best quality, it could have the reverse effect. Absolutely. Absolutely. In, In fact, poor quality distracts from the message. And people obviously looking at things, and I've done it myself, and I'm more tied up with what's going on in the video background or the poor audio quality, and I'm not listening to the message that's being Absolutely. given. Absolutely. So, and that's my and that's my point. Yeah. It's like spend you know spend ninety dollars on a decent freaking microphone. Yeah. So you're not just talking to your internal mic on your on your phone or something like that. You know yeah. that's. That's a that's not a big investment to make, and that makes, as you know, as a podcaster, that makes all the different just decent video sure, quality. Sure, I mean audio quality, rather. Yeah, yeah. When uh, when COVID came in and everybody shifted over to Zoom, it's not a case of just opening your laptop on the kitchen table, switching it on and off you go. In fact, I refused to do that, and I had built a purpose-built studio here, which you can see, and. It, it is world class. And I've just come out to do the video training and virtual training and things like that. And people are going, wow, how on earth do you do that? Um, simple, simple. Find out what's needed, invest in the best equipment, let everyone else make all the mistakes. And now as we're coming out of the other side of COVID, I'm getting all of the work because the quality is up there and all the other people now, they, they're they being seen as, oh, all these distractions in the background and now they're losing everything. And so I hear what you're saying. So the quality of the video you do, audio, visual, everything is paramount before you even speak a word. Right. And that's to me, that's just like the basics that we're just talking yes. production, right? Yeah. For then sure. it becomes, OK, what are you doing videos on? How long are they? What's your message? What are your graphics? What's your strategy? What's your, you know, and that that's where the marketing part comes in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I struggled with in the beginning was that how long should a marketing video be? And one of the problems I did, I made them too long. Yeah. So there were five minutes and six minutes and I was trying to do everything. Right. And and now I have them less than two minutes. And to convey your message in one minute, 30 seconds and two minutes to begin with is really, really tough. And that's because. And here's the thing. One of the one of the steps in success, one actually is. You ask people what they want or what they do, and they can't tell you. Yeah. So 
to find someone who can do some marketing for you. If you can't tell a marketing guy what you do, how on earth can a marketing guy tell the world what you do if you don't know yourself? Well, let me let me just to, to give a little slack to business owners that may fall into the category that you just described, Jeff. Mm -hmm. um, it's because they're not marketing people that they don't think in sound bites. Yeah. That's kind of my job. My job is to listen to these people talk for 30 minutes to tell me what they do and then create a 30 second video yeah. that 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 does what they did in 30 minutes. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And this is, this is, and this is why um, I say that people who are running a business should not necessarily be the ones marketing their business. That's really not their job. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Uh, because they're not trained. I'm trained to think in 30 seconds. We, we were a lot of the commercials we did were 15 seconds. Yeah. Some of the best commercials. So that's how I think in sound bites. Yeah. And it's really tough, really tough to make such a massive impact in such a short amount of time. It is definitely an acquired skill. I take my hats off to you for that and for doing so well. Okay, so thank you for all those tips on marketing. What I want to get to now is John Forrest, the person. You do, you contribute to, let me say, humanity outside of work to the degree where you have been honoured at the White House. Wow. Tell me about that. So very early on my in my career, I, I worked for one of the, the, the best agencies in New York City. It was called Doyle Dane Burnback. They actually did, you may be old enough to remember, uh, Jeff, uh, they did all the great Volkswagen ads of the 60s. Yeah, right. And I don't know, I don't know what it was like in other countries, but in the US, that was like one of the, the most creative campaigns in America during the 60s. The Volkswagen was you know, a great car and they just did a great job advertising it. So it was that that agency. And I ended up working. I actually worked on the Volkswagen account when I was there in the mid 80s. But the founder, one of the founders, uh, Bill Burnback, had a quote that really stuck with me. And the quote was the advertising people in this country are the best communicators in history. Uh, wouldn't it be amazing if they applied their communication skills toward making the world a better place. Imagine the difference it would make. And I like that quote so much, I printed it out and framed it, and put it on my wall, because um, when you're working at a big agency, you don't really have control over the assignments you're working on. One day you're working on Volkswagen, and the next day you're working on um, uh, potato chips. Yeah. Or, or ding dongs or, you know, fish sticks or whatever it is. <laughs> And, you know, which is fine. Everyone needs fish sticks and Fritos and potato chips. But um, when that quote was hanging up on my wall, it made me realize that, yeah, it would be kind of cool to um, find uh, non-for-profit uh, causes that are in need of someone with my talents, even if I'm not getting paid just to up the top, maybe I'll get some good portfolio pieces out of it, which, you know, was always, uh, you know, on the forefront of my mind. So from the point of my, of my early twenties, Jeff, I always uh, tried to find time. Uh, even if it was on my own, if it wasn't with, you know, big agencies often have non nonprofits that they work with, but um, even when that was not the case, I would uh, during my networking sometimes come across organizations that needed help. So, I would always try to find time to, uh, to work on these assignments. And um, when we started our agency, I, on my own, I was uh, watching TV one night and came up with an idea just totally on my own for a child abuse awareness ad. Mm -hmm. I found out that Hitler was abused as a kid. Mm -hmm. And I won't go into detail about it uh, unless you want to hear it, but I, I, I came up with an ad that involved the fact that Hitler was abused as a kid. I was talking about edgy ad, right? When you feature yeah. Hitler in an ad. Yeah, sure. And I, I showed it to my partner. Um, I think the headline was some abused children grow up to become famous, I think was the headline. And the, the, the tagline was child abuse. It affects, it, it hurts all of us. And the point I was trying to make is that um, you don't have to be 
an abusive parent. Uh, you don't even have to be a parent to uh, suffer the uh, effects of child abuse on society. Because if these people grow up, who are abused as kids grow up uh, without dealing and resolving their child abuse issues, and they get, get some power, they're really going to screw up the world and maybe screw up your life because of the issues that they have around being abused as a kid. So I showed it to my partner. He really liked it. Um, we presented it to um, oh the, the main national child abuse organization was based in Chicago. We were in New York. He called them up about two weeks before they said they were coming to New York for a meeting. They said, we have a meeting with the NBA, the National Basketball Association. Didn't say why. They just said, we're going to be there for a meeting. So come up to the NBA headquarters. Show us your ad. We'll talk. Sat around the table with some NBA executives. We don't, again, we didn't know why they were talking to the NBA. It turned out, Jeff, that they were, um, they were trying to pitch the NBA to get them, the NBA to agree to give some of their TV airtime to run some PSAs, public service commercials, for their organization in the NBA playoffs of that year. Right. And they were actually looking for an agency. So their agenda to meet with us was not so much to see our ad, my ad, was to see uh, whether or not they liked us to maybe have us be the agency to do these national TV commercials. We didn't know any of this. All we knew is that we were going to present. So we're, I'm around the table with three executives from this nonprofit and about five executives from the NBA. And they said, okay, so what's this ad? And I showed them this ad with Hitler and you should have seen the, the expressions <laughs> on these executives' faces when I showed them an ad featuring Adolf Hitler. And um, they just, as politely as they could, basically said, no freaking way are we going to use this ad. Now, we didn't know what their agenda was, but all of a sudden the conversation started switching. And I'm still, I was naive. I was still focused on trying to sell them this ad because I thought it was a brilliant ad. And my, my partner is kicking me under the table to shut up because now the conversation is shifting. We've got to find an agency to do these national TV commercials. Right. So that's how we, uh, he was literally kicking me under the table to shut up. And when I did shut up, they started talking about, they had like uh, a month to create, find an agency to create and produce a series of TV commercials that focused on the issue of child abuse that the NBA was going to devote $5 million worth of media time during the month of NBA playoffs. Right now, the NBA playoffs are uh, running here and they get millions of mil hundreds of millions of views. So it was a real opportunity and uh, ended up, I ended up creating three spots that, um, uh, they, do, they would have been happy just to get an NBA player talking to Cam or reading a script. We mm -hmm. didn't want to do that. We said, mm -hmm. we're not going to do this unless we do, can do something creative. So we did some real creative spots. And uh, a month, month or two later, after the, the, the spots ran, I get an invitation in the mail that has got a strange return address on it that says the White House. To which I said, well, this is a very creative way of getting my attention. Obviously, someone is looking for a job and they just want me to open this stuff and kudos to them. Yeah. yeah. Well, OK, I'll fall for it. I'll open it up. I'll see, you know, I was looking for a job as a copywriter and art director. And on it is this very um, embossed gold script writing that says uh, we would be honored to have you as a guest at a reception hosted by. Barbara Bush was the first lady at, mm. at the time. This was 1991. George Bush, the first was president um, and to be honored uh, for your public service efforts. Now, how I got on the radar screen, I still don't know. Other than maybe George was watching the NBA playoffs and said, Barbara, uh, take a look at these commercials. We got to find out who did these. These are great because they were her pet cause was child abuse prevention mm -hmm. 
And they were looking for people, not just for that cause, but around the country who were doing things related to child abuse uh, prevention, child abuse prevention. And so I was one of a couple of dozen people who were invited to this big reception to be honored. So that's the story of that. Wow. Awesome, though. Awesome. Incredible. So what other projects do you get involved with or in? I know you're doing something related with bullying as well, aren't you? Yeah, I, I probably, you know, this was <clears throat> this was when I was in my mid 30s. I mean, starting from my 20s, Jeff, I'm 67 now. I'll be 68 in a week. Um, I probably have worked on three dozen nonprofit organizations. So all kinds of stuff. I mean, I really enjoy it. I feel like this is my way of contributing to, you know, you 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 ask the question, what is success? Yep what is this successful life? And, you know, early on in my career was to have, you know, make a lot of money and be at the top of my profession. And <clears throat> there's nothing wrong with that. But at this point, success to me is making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. uh, however, I can do that. So one of the ways I can do that is to use my skills, my talents toward working, uh, contributing to these causes. So bullying is just one of, of the two, three dozen uh, cause uh, efforts, cause marketing efforts I've been involved with, but there've been many. Awesome. Um, awesome. It, it's, it, I feel humbled and privileged to be speaking with you today. It's just, just wonderful. Thank you for the tips, John. Today, you've been absolutely wonderful, amazing, a heartfelt thank you. Thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you for all of the tips. You've been great. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank, Thank you, you, Jeff. Well, that was John Follis, and that's it for today. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Success. I hope the show has helped to ignite your passion to be a catalyst for action and giving you the fuel you need to realize your own dream. If you've enjoyed the show, please hit the like button, leave a review, and share. It makes a huge difference because we can't succeed unless you do that. So please hit the like, review, follow and share. On another note, I'm always looking for great success stories. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show or you'd like to nominate a guest, please contact me at the website jeff-smith.com. I'd really love to hear from you. That's all from me today. Thank you for listening and have a great day.